0: Hey everybody, come on over here, it's the Northern Miner Podcast. Welcome to Episode 108 of the Northern Miner Podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the Editor-in-Chief of the Northern Miner, and we have a terrific show lined up for you this week. Uh, What I'm going to do is start off with some commodity news, some of the biggest news there, as well as uh, some mining news, and then we're going to swing into a new episode of Rick's Picks with our staff writer, Richard Quarissa, and the meat of the podcast will be a panel session from our Canadian Mining Symposium in London a little while ago. And this uh, topic is the Northwest Territories. This is a panel sponsored by the Northwest Territories government. We start off with opening remarks from Wally Schumann. He's the Minister of Industry, Tourism, and Investment. And he's also the Minister of Infrastructure with the NWT government. And then we also have the Deputy Minister, Tom Jensen. He's moved up from BC to be a DM of Tourism and Investment. And then we have some mining company executives, Michael Byron, he's the president and CEO of Nighthawk Gold, Joseph Campbell, he's the CEO of Terra X Minerals, and Ken Armstrong, president and CEO of North Arrow Minerals. Some of the topics we cover in the NWT, uh, well, I I know in years past, it's gotten the reputation of being too bureaucratic compared to some other um, jurisdictions. But uh, I think you'll find with this panel discussion, uh, a lot of that has changed. You've had the devolution of the federal powers to the territorial government there. So that has been accomplished. And now the government is revising some of its laws to be um, a little more amenable to the mining community. They're very sensitive of the importance of mining to the NWT economy, especially diamond mining, as you can imagine. I'm sure as you listen to this, you'll be convinced the government's uh, very much pro-mining there. We talk about the reforming the laws, some of the new geoscience initiatives, some incentives, infrastructure, workforce. And, uh, you know, the government's quite eager to diversify the economy away from diamonds, but in this case dif- diversifying into other commodities such as base metals and gold. And uh, we touch on the indigenous issues as well, and the NWT government uh, now feel that they have a model that others in the country can follow. This podcast is brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. This is a group of 17 companies exploring, developing, and mining uh, mineral projects in the Yukon. You can follow the Yukon Mining Alliance at, at @InvestYukon on Twitter. And you can also go to their website, YukonMiningAlliance.ca. And that's a great source for news on all the uh, member companies of the Alliance. This podcast is also brought to you by the Grasso Group out of Vancouver, which is led by Joe Grasso. Their three public companies are Blue Sky Uranium, Golden Arrow Resources, and Argentina Lithium and Energy. Those are all active in the, uh, well, all throughout uh, Argentina. And you can find out more by going to their website, GrassoGroup.com, and from there, there are links to all three companies. And I want to give a special thanks to our sponsors because that's allowing us to uh, build up our podcast studio a little bit here, humble as it is. Uh, So we now have an area where we can do uh, one-on-one interviews within our office here in Toronto. We were also, for the first time, when I went to Ukraine a few weeks ago, I was able to record a podcast and upload it from uh, Kiev. So thanks to our sponsors for helping us uh, get that equipment. Let's take a bit of a break and I'll come back with the commodity news. Well, as I uh, record this on uh, Sunday, June 9th, it's been fairly quiet with most of the commodities, uh, especially the precious metals are just kind of going sideways week after week. But uh, there's some interesting studies coming out. We had the Metals Focus Group, They're the, a lot of the former uh, GFMS people, uh, well, they sold out and then went quiet for a while and then reformed as Metals Focus. They put out their Silver Focus 2018. They say. Following a disappointing 2017, the lackluster tone for the silver price has largely continued so far this year, moving broadly sideways in a $16 to $18 range. In particular, a positive macroeconomic backdrop, rising bond yields, and subdued inflation have all weighed on the precious metals complex. For 2018, we expect the challenging environment for silver to persist over the near term. Overall, they see things picking up a bit at the end of the year, and then they're seeing a uh, full-year average price for silver of seventeen forty, which would be up 2% year-over-year. Year. Uh, and, of course, it's higher than it is now. It's, it's below $17 right now. And they note there was a 1% rise in mine production in 2017. They say 2018 should have another year of oversupply, albeit less than uh, the last two years. Here's some interesting news just uh, related to PGMs. You know, a big market for PGMs is auto catalysts, the um, catalytic converters in uh, automobiles. And Nissan Motors says they plan to end the development of their diesel engines as uh, electric vehicles start to take off. Authorities in Britain, France, China, and other countries are considering restricting sales of diesel engines uh, in the future to meet stricter environmental regulations. And Nissan currently sells two types of diesel engines that they manufacture in Yokohama and a few other locations. So, uh, Nissan expects to halt new development on uh, diesel engines in the 2020s. And Nissan has halted sales of passenger cars with diesel engines in major markets, including Japan and the US. And they will stop sales in Europe in the early 2020s. They will continue to sell diesel engine equipped commercial vehicles like vans. But uh, these engines will be procured from outside sources. Nissan's French partner Renault is also planning to end development of diesel engines. So, uh, if you're new to the uh, Platinum Group Metals world, there, it tends to be with the diesel engines, the auto catalysts are heavier in platinum compared to palladium. And with normal uh, gasoline powered uh, engines, the uh, auto catalysts are a little more heavy in uh, palladium versus a platinum. And then a typical auto catalyst might use uh, a tenth of an ounce of PGMs. So, you know, say you spend $50,000 on an SUV, there might be, you know, $100 worth of PGMs in the auto catalyst. And, uh, a few years ago when PGMs really started spiking, you'd have people parking their SUVs. And uh, overnight and they'd wake up the next morning and someone had hacksawed off their auto catalyst for that $100 of PGMs in there. So with diesel engines being gradually phased out, that's uh, more bearish for platinum than for palladium. Continuing with the PGMs, you have GFMS. They released their Platinum Group metals Survey. And the headline is, uh, are the dark days for platinum set to last? And as you can imagine, that ties into the Auto Catalyst story. First, they talk about platinum, and they note that platinum mine production was uh, up by 1% in 2017 and totaling to 5.9 million ounces. And they note that uh, there has been a drop in costs of mining, but that still 32% of platinum production is underwater. That's down from 35% in 2016. Uh, I imagine a lot of that is in um, South Africa. In terms of mine production, there was lower production from South Africa, Zimbabwe, and Canada. Even what I was saying with the diesel being phased out, you have a stat here platinum uptake in the production of auto catalyst applications last year rose by 7.1% to 3.48 million ounces, despite the negative sentiment from the vital diesel market in developed countries. So, uh, the negative sentiment, but at the same time, with uh, increased environmental regulations, the loading on the auto catalysts is increasing. So, more PGMs are being used in fewer auto catalysts. In in a nutshell, so this was the fourth consecutive year of rise in platinum uptake, and offtake was the highest in a decade. Platinum demand in China again stood out from everybody, rising sixteen percent in 2017. And over into palladium, we had mine production of palladium was up three percent in 2017 to six point seven four million ounces. Output rose in Russia, South Africa, and the United States but was uh, down in Canada. The largest increase was at Norilsk's Russian operations, led by the processing of concentrate purchased from Rostec and work-in-progress material in transit from the Polar to Kola division. Here we had the platinum demand in auto catalysts was up 4% to 7.9 million ounces. And that is a new record high. And again, that's because of the uh, increased loadings related to environmental rules. So GFMS is predicting that the palladium price is set to exceed platinum on an annual basis in 2018, which will be the first time in history. And then they expect palladium to average over $1,000 on an average annual basis for the first time ever this year. But the biggest news, I would say, was over in the base metals, and that was because copper hit a a four-and-a-half-year high for a few reasons. There was the weaker U.S. dollar, closure of an Indian smelter, And the Escondida mine, which is the biggest in the world, that's BHP and Rio Tinto, are the um, largest owners there. Uh, There was a threat of a strike. It's not happened yet, but there's just signs there could be a strike there. If you recall, uh, last year there was a six-week strike at Escondida, and that was ended kind of as a truce, and there was invoking a legal provision that uh, extended the current contract of last year until July 2018. So July 2018 is now upon us or almost upon us. So now the negotiations are getting uh, heated again. Union number 1 at Escondida is asking for a sign-on bonus of between 35 and 41 5 for its uh, members as well as a 5% salary increase and uh, BHP is rejecting that. BHP is going to have a counter-offer later this month so we'll see how that works out. As the uh, operator, BHP will give a counter offer later this month, and then um, they also note that BHP lost a billion dollars in revenue during the strike last year. That other thing I mentioned uh, weighing on copper was the closure this year of Vedanta's400,000 ton per year copper smelter in the South Indian town of Tuticorin, if I'm saying that right. Uh, just last month, police fired on crowds protesting against plans to expand the smelter, killing 12 people. And many say this uh, smelter will not resume production, but who knows there, but certainly not in the short term. Now, with the aluminum market and a bit of a tizzy lately with the Roussel problems and the tariffs being uh, imposed and threatened by the Trump administration in the U.S., that brought together the National Aluminum Associations from Canada, the U.S., Europe, and Japan to something called the Montreal Aluminium Summit that was held in uh, Montreal, uh, just in the lead-up to the G7 meeting in Quebec. What you had was the um, all the associations getting together and s- noting that subsidized overcapacity and other market distorting behavior is undermining the sustainable growth of the global aluminum industry for both primary and downstream aluminum producers. So these uh, national aluminum associations are urging the G7 leaders to request the G20 create a uh, forum to look at aluminum over capacity. Now, the associations have gotten together and put out something they call a roadmap, and they identify China uh, as as the problem. (laughs) And they say, uh, as China grows its overwhelming share of the market by adding new capacity upstream and downstream, enabled by state subsidies, discriminatory duties on raw metal and support programs of all forms, it progressively undermines existing privately owned competition while inhibiting market-driven expansion outside the country. Free and fair trade of aluminum is at stake. And in their roadmap, they have some quite startling statistics here. You have aluminum primary smelting overcapacity in China is expected to grow 30% this year compared to uh, 2017. That 30% growth represents 3.3 million tons of additional capacity in just one year or more than the total production capacity of Canada, the fourth producing country. So total capacity in China is estimated to reach 49 million tons, or 54% of global capacity. So 54% by the end of this year, and this is up from 10% in 2000. And you can see here the Chinese aluminum smelting utilization rate is only around 70% when uh, it's around 88% in the rest of the world. They note that initially, China frantically boosted its aluminum production in order to answer the needs of an amazing wave of urbanization and industrialization, from less than a million tons in 1990 to 2.8 million tons in 2000 to 20 million tons in 2010 and close to 34 million tons in 2017. China's phenomenal increase in primary aluminum production went as planned. And they note that China has spent somewhere between 120 and $150 billion to build its aluminum capacity. And just some of their other documents here from that uh, aluminum get-together front and center was uh, Jean Charest, the former premier of Quebec. He's now a partner at uh, McCartney Tetro. And some other multi-billion dollar news in the resource world. You have BHP Billiton. Uh, if you remember, they spent about $20 billion uh, in 2011 or so buying uh, U.S. oil and gas assets, and now they're selling their shale unit in the U.S., and they're in the first round of bidding, and so far, uh, apparently, they've gotten bids between 7 and $9 billion from their por- portfolio of U.S. shale assets, so the next round uh, will be coming up. They may receive between 10 and $13 billion, and bidders are said to be BP, Chevron, Shell, Blackstone, and Apollo. One last bit of mining news here. It's a project that's always been intriguing for decades, really. Uh, This is a new uh, update for the Sukhoi log uh, project. That's a huge uh, gold deposit in the Irkutsk oblast of far eastern Russia. And uh, that's now owned by Polyus, uh, the Russian gold producer. It's uh, on the London Stock Exchange. Let me see here. This has been drilled out for decades, but th- there was some more drilling lately. But roughly, I think in the inferred category, this is 930 million tons at 2.1 grams per ton. So that's 63 million ounces of gold. But um, let me see, they don't say it anywhere in the release, but that is refractory ore. That's that's always been the problem with uh, Sukhoi log. I think it's very fine-grained and mixed in with sulfides. Uh, I'm not exactly sure the breakdown of the sulfides, but it's the one, one of the classic problems with the Russian ores is uh, you know, maybe 80% of them are refractory. Now, it looks like Polyus is going all in with this project now, Sukhoi Log. You have Pavel Grachev. He's the CEO, Polyus. He says, we have made serious progress in the development of Sukhoi Log during the last 14 months following the acquisition of the license. They bought out the rest of their partner's interest there. Uh, Sukhoi Log is a one-of-a-kind deposit whose quality and scale are outstanding apart from the refractory ore, of course, we see it as a cornerstone of the future development of polyus. Uh, they noted they wrapped up a drilling program of 43,000 meters. This reconciled well with the work done between 1961 and 1993. Uh, yeah, there's Some Australians were in there in the 1990s and then Placer Dome, so, and, of course, Soviet uh, workers before that. So some of the big numbers here just in the this uh, preliminary study. You've got a mill throughput capacity of 30 million tons per year, and that would produce an annual production of 1.6 million ounces gold per year. So it would be one of the top gold mines in the world in in terms of uh, gold output, something like a Murantau, And the total cash cost of $420 to $470 per ounce. And this mine would cost between two and $2.5 billion to build. The investment decision and start of construction CapEx spending are planned for 2020 or 2021, and they expect production will start in and around 2026, assuming positive investment decision and financing being secured. Uh, So they will keep spending about $30 million U.S. on this uh, project uh, in the meantime. Uh, In the shorter term, so they're going to have a pre-feasibility study finished in 2020, and then a full feasibility study due out in 2021. And we're going to take a little break and come back with a round of Rick's Picks. Now we're returning for another episode of Rick's Picks. It's been a while, there, Richard. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing good, John. It's a pleasure to be back. I've uh, <laughs> I've missed being on the podcast.
0: Yeah, it's been a crazy past few months. I was off in Ukraine, and then sick a bit, and then before that, we were both in London. Oh yeah. Um, so we dedicate this one to Puya, uh, my friend <laughs> at University of Toronto. He's uh, an engineer, and he's gone back to uh, do his doctorate in uh, mining engineering, and uh, he clamored for a new Rick's Picks. Episode. So uh, this one's out uh, for you, Puya. <laughs> and I should say, we, we, I don't think we've been explicit about it, but we should say these are Richard's picks of interesting stories. These are not stock recommendations whatsoever. I am uh, not a professional
1: <laughs> in any sense.
0: So, so uh, yeah, so these are uh, Richard's picks for uh, interesting stories. So, uh, Richard, what do you got for us this week?
1: All right. Well, for us, and in particular for Puya, we have first up uh, a company called Pact and Gold. Pacton is a gold explorer with projects in Canada and Australia. So last week, shares of Pacton gold tumbled $0.34 cents to $0.43 cents after neighbouring explorer Novo Resources announced the results of two 7-ton bulk samples that it had taken from its Karatha gold project in Western Australia's Pilbara region. The first was okay. It graded 10.4 grams gold per ton, but the second returned just 1.5 grams gold per ton, which was quite a bit lower than I think the company had hoped. Shares of Novo also took a hit following the news, falling 29% to $4.28. Now, shortly after, Pacton announced it had acquired properties totaling more than 1,000 square kilometers, raising the company's Pilbara portfolio to just over 2,200 square kilometers and making it the third largest landholder in the Pilbara area. Uh, at the same time, the company entered into a separate agreement to acquire another 31 square kilometers from Gardner Mining. The property is called the Friendly Creek Gold property, and Pacton paid $25,000 and 2.5 million shares to acquire it. Its land position equals just 18% of Novos in the Pilbara region. Since the tumble, shares of Pacton have recovered a bit and are back up to $0.67, cents, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how you know further exploration by both Novo and Pactin impact that company.
0: Right. And I know that's been a very popular story uh, for people in Australia and Canada and the US, this whole idea of the WITS 2.0 basin. And I, I should say, if you're really interested in this, you could go back to our podcast that uh, Leslie recorded with a uh, specialist, a geologist. That's one of our most listened to podcasts. And he goes, to great, great detail about the technical comparisons of uh, Pilbara with uh, the, the real WITS Waters Rand. So uh, if you want a, a real in-depth uh, primer on the WITS 2.0 concept, which we're a little bit uh, skeptical of, or I, I am, <laughs> <laughs> and Leslie, you can see that in our podcast archives.
1: Yeah, she also wrote a, a bunch of good stories about about just the area and the company that I know uh, I've enjoyed reading through over the last year, so maybe yeah. check those out as well.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll put some links in the uh, podcast notes. And uh, number two pick?
1: Number two, we're going to the Toronto Stock Exchange with Labrador Iron Ore Royalty. That company's shares jumped $2.28 to 24 bucks a piece after the Iron Ore Company uh, reached an agreement with unionized workers. To end a strike that began March 27th at the company's Septiles. 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 <laughs> Voyons <laughs> My French is not up to snuff. Uh, at the company Septiles project. The strike hurt Labrador iron ore royalties revenue, which depends, of course, on the sale of iron ore products by the IOC. So yeah, that's really positive news out of uh, Labrador Iron Ore royalties and really great news for the company and uh, that'll do it for Labrador Iron Ore.
0: (laughs) Okay, and uh, moving right on to number three.
1: (laughs) Number three, we're going back to the venture with a company called Goldex Resources that's had some trouble lately just staying actively listed on uh, the stock exchanges where it appears. Goldex is currently producing on a small scale at its Korokoro gold project in Mali where it has a pilot processing plant that can process up to 10 tons of ore per hour. Shares of Goldex peaked at $2.56 in March after positive news out of the company's Korokoro gold project in Mali including the discovery of a new prospective area and uh, the announcement of joint ventures with Geosystech and Rex Metal. Goldex shares plummeted, however, as low as $0.88 after the BC Securities Commission issued a halt trade order on March 20th to prevent trading of the company's shares until April 10th, saying circumstances exist or may occur that could result in other than an orderly trading of the company's shares. Now, the HTO was eventually lifted, and we're not sure exactly why, but... The share price rebounded a bit after the HTO was lifted. Uh, however, it then fell again, as low as forty-four cents, when the Frankfurt Stock Exchange also suspended trading of the company shares on April twenty-fourth. Shares of Goldex Resources rose sixty-nine cents to a buck sixteen after news that a trade ban that the trade ban had been lifted, but have since cooled and are back down below a dollar.
0: Oh, good stuff! And uh, one more to finish it off.
1: Yeah, we have one more bonus pick coming hot at our listeners right now. This is for a an interesting little company uh, that's listed on the Australian Stock Exchange called Argosy Minerals. Shares of Argosy fell nearly 30% to 22 Australian cents in early May following a somewhat confusing announcement from the company that it had produced an initial batch of industrial-grade lithium at its Rincon Lithium Project in Argentina's Salta province. Now, the announcement was confusing because the company, of course, had intended to produce battery-grade lithium. The company released a second announcement a day later clarifying some of the confusion. It attributed the lower-grade lithium to a lack of Maine's natural gas, saying it had always intended to use a gas connection for its Stage 1 industrial-scale plant, but that a workaround gas tank supply was also assembled. It believed it could use the tank gas to produce battery-grade lithium, but that in practice, it did not, quote, provide enough direct heat for enough time on a stable basis.
0: Yikes. So, do they have any solutions to this? Or
1: They say they're working on a solution right now. Uh-huh. It's, pre- and,
0: it's pretty embarrassing.
1: Yeah, well, they say that um, they intend to get the uh, kind of the mainline gas going, but they haven't been too specific about what that process looks like or when that might be completed. I think at the same time it's worth noting that the company began construction on the project in early 2017 despite lacking a resource estimate and a PEA hmm. although as with the gas situation it says that it's currently working on both of those although no concrete word on when we might expect to see any of that stuff you know really come to fruition right so if i understand correctly they have to filter out certain impurities to raise it from industrial grade to I gu- I guess, to yeah. lithium grade and according to them, they were able so they're presenting this as they were able to filter out kind of some of the main impurities that you might be looking for, but that they weren't able to get all of them huh. without the uh, without that natural gas pipeline supply.
0: Huh. It's all kind of weird.
1: It is it is really weird <laughs> and it's hard to know it's hard yeah. to know what to make of this company. So <laughs> yeah. I mean, the stock fell like, you know, thirty percent like I said, and, and it's back up to about twenty five cents at present but it seems like they have substantial issues, so it'll be interesting to see what, if anything, happens there.
0: Right. Okay, good stuff. Thanks, Richard.
1: Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be back, and a shout-out to our friend... Booyah. Pooya. <laughs> Thank you for listening.
0: Bye-bye. Good stuff. Now we're going to take a little break and come back with the Northwest Territories panel, and uh, it's something a little funny here, if you can guess when it happens, uh, you know, I'm in this absolutely beautiful uh, facility, the Canada House in London, in my suit and tie, and I'm on stage. And uh, I have just poured myself a full glass of water. And then um, shortly into the speech, I actually knocked the glass over on the podium. So a full, a full glass of water uh, was like a waterfall off the podium. So, so see if you can identify that moment when that happens. But anyway, we'll take a break and be back with the Northwest Territories panel.
2: Thank you, for everyone, for coming here this afternoon and for your interest in the Northwest Territories. Before I get too deep into this, I want to give you a brief introduction to our territory. The Northwest Territory is amongst Canada's largest jurisdictions. For those of you that don't know the layout of Canada, we're uh, one-third of the top of the northern part of our country. We have 1.3 million square kilometres of land and the total population of a small city. Uh, With my opportunity to be here in London, uh, I'd say about two square blocks would be our population. Uh, What we lack in population, we make up for resources. Our region economy was built by prospectors and investors who fund them, and they keep coming back because our geology is amongst the highest potential in the world. We have nearly a century of continuous mining, and it begins with metals like zinc, lead, gold, and later we became the birthplace of what I call Canadian diamonds. Today, we've produced more than $2 billion in value from our world-leading diamond industry. And in a difficult exploration market, we've seen an uptick in claim staking, a testament to the continuing attractiveness of our jurisdiction. That said, most of the territory lies above the Arctic Circle. And for those of you that haven't been there, that means that our climate can be harsh and unforgiving. As a government, our tax base is limited, so it's hard for our government to invest in projects alone, and that's why we're here today. We recognize that the competition for exploration and development dollars is strong with the realities I just explained, it begs the question, how does the NWT expect to compete? The answer comes down to what we call the NWT difference. It's at the core of who we are. To understand our unique edge on mineral exploration and development, you first need to know two things. The first thing you need to know is the NWT has an extraordinary wealth of resources. We're about way more than diamonds. We're seeing a resurgence in interest in gold and base metals that established our territory. Perhaps the most exciting we have have are the resources needed to power the green economy of the future. As the federal government derives its agenda of innovation and technology, attention is growing on the Northwest Territory's strategic and technical minerals like lithium, cobalt and rare earth elements. And with a long-standing history on strong governance and an 80-year history of collaboration with the mining sector, these resources come with a kind of politically stable and investment security elusive in many jurisdictions. And with this kind of potential, the second thing you need to know is our Northerners support mining. This is one thing I like to talk about. And my notes don't have all the specifics here, but... A year ago, we had a survey done by a very large group in Canada that surveyed residents of the Northwest Territories, and one thing is quite clear, 86% of our residents believe in a strong mining sector and the vital long-term health of it. 82% want to see mining projects continue in the Northwest Territories. NWT residents and businesses support mining because they are an important part of our mining sector. The other thing that my notes don't say is the mining sector is up to 25% of our GDP of our whole territory. Mining has driven the NWT economy for a long time. Many of today's world leaders worked in mines and the exploration sector, and then when diamond mines arrived, the natural evolution to get involved was the case. Indigenous governments in our territory also have a vested interest, with many of them settled modern land claim agreements. They share in resource royalties paid by our mines and are part of our co-management regulatory system. There is a defined structure through which our government works with our Indigenous governments and communities and a clear path to communication and negotiation for industry stakeholders. Until 2014, our natural resources were managed by the Government of Canada. So, in 2014, we took over. It left us with policies and legislations that didn't make sense for our Territory and those doing business there. With the reins firmly now in our hands, we are changing that. This change is guided by our mineral development strategy. We are drafting new mineral resource legislation to address the need for a modern, clear, competitive laws that respond to the needs of the NWT. And this is a big step forward for our Territory. We're invested in making new relevant geoscience available. This includes reports on the geochemistry of the slave geological province, which is one of the highest potential regions in Canada, and I have to stick it in here because I always say it everywhere I go, I believe it's bigger than the Abitibi belt. Our government has a million dollar mining incentive program available to prospectors and exploration companies carrying out mineral exploration in our territory. For many, that might not seem like a lot, but for our territory, that is a significant amount and helps us helps the juniors be able to be able to participate in, in exploration. We are committed to building a workforce that is employable through the mineral industry through our ECE's uh, Skills for Success program. We have created a unique approach to mineral exploration development in W.T. It is based on the fundamental fact that Northerners want new mines, as I've said and our economy needs new mines, and that buy-in is essential driving the development forward. Our approach is built on partnership with industry stakeholders and Indigenous governments that make up our territory. It's built on mutual respect and recognition that each of us can contribute to the success of other two and maximize the benefits. Through our social-economic agreements established by our government with mining companies, In 25 years of working together we have built this ecosystem of well-trained local workers and mine service companies proven to keep world-class mines on track. Our people are seeing real, tangible reasons to stay in school and seek higher learning. They're doing more than taking labor jobs at the mines. They're going to university in the south and coming back schooled in mining related fields like engineering and geoscience. Our indigenous governments own and operate the companies that service the mines creating a robust Indigenous business community. They own and construct logistics and transportation companies. Some have expanded beyond our territory to the service industries in Alberta and across Canada. This I'd like to spend maybe a couple of seconds on. Just to give you the context what the three diamond mines spent in the Northwest Territory since 1996, they've spent roughly $19 billion in procurement. 13 billion of that was spent with northern companies, and approximately 6 billion of that was spent with aboriginal corporations. So, it gives you an idea how successful these people are. In closing, mining is allowing our people to take control of their future. It provides thousands of jobs to northerners where otherwise there would be none. It is inspiring youth to stay in school and aspire to have better jobs and even careers. Mining revenues are empowering and shaping indigenous governments, businesses, and communities and that's the NWT difference. And why should it matter to you? Because it means that you've laid the groundwork for our residents to want to work with you as much as we do, and then you can invest in attracting resources anywhere, but if you want to do it in a security, and a territory where your investment will empower our people and inspire the future, come and invest in the Northwest Territories. Thank you very much. Thank you, Minister Schumann.
3: So I'd like to introduce Editor-in-Chief of the Northern Miner. He's getting some water, he's a little parched. Here's John coming to, to lead the panel.
0: Good afternoon, everybody. And let's jump into the Northwest Territories here. We have a very experienced crew here, four geologists, so I may just ask you a bunch of geology, ge- geology questions. Went from my near right to the far right. We have Tom Jensen, he's the Deputy Minister of Industry, Tourism, and Investment appointed in the summer of 2016. You know, he voted with his feet. He was a long-time, anyone who's been in BC knows Tom, uh, long-time civil servant in uh, BC and moved up to the uh, territory. So there's a vote of confidence in a new government and the new challenges. Immediately, we've heard from Robin Goad a couple times uh, over the past few days. He was president and CEO of Fortune Minerals with their NICO project, nickel cobalt, bismuth copper. And then we got Ken Armstrong, he's the president and CEO of North Arrow Minerals, diamond explorer, and very experienced in the diamond industry. We have uh, Joseph Campbell, he's the chairman and CEO of Terex Minerals. They have their Yellowknife City gold project just on the outskirts of town there in Yellowknife. And at the very end, uh, we've heard from Michael as well, Uh, Michael J. Byron, he's the president and CEO of Nighthawk Gold with their uh, very large Colomat gold property in the Northwest Territories. And uh, if I could just reiterate something you said, Wally. Everyone should understand in London now that when you come to the territories, you're basically dealing with a provincial government. They have all the, for the most part, the powers of a provincial government. Offshore oil and gas is a different story. But um, on the plus side, you have all the advantages of a small group of people. Here we have the Mines Minister, essentially here, ready to speak to anyone. So uh, you get the best of both worlds in the Northwest Territories. Tom, if you could just give us a run through. Pam, at the very beginning, was mentioning um, this morning uh, the diamond industry of the North- Northwest Territories is the, the base of the pyramid. And there's been a lot of changes over the last two years in ownership and expansions and new mines. Just what has gone on in the diamond industry where so much British uh, money has gone into over the past couple decades decades? You... Okay,
4: well, there's a lot, a lot that has actually happened. Um, the... Um one of the things that happened most recently was a uh, the Washington group from uh, in the United States uh, purchased Dominion Diamond, which means they own 100% of the Acadie mine and which means they own uh, 40% of the um, the mine that's uh, uh, 60% owned by uh, Rio Tinto the Diamant mine. So they become they become a real big player in the Northwest Territories in terms of uh, diamond production. One of the things that's really good about that is in the discussions that we there's two things that are good about that. One they've recently appointed Patrick Evans as the CEO to uh, run the the mine, run the corporation, and he has a significant experience in diamonds and exploration in the territory. as being the former CEO of Mountain Province Diamonds, which is a partner with De Beers on our most recent mine that was opened called Gatchel Quay, so there's a partnership there that uh, Patrick was very involved in on the exploration site, and what the signal for us, and at least the language that we're hearing from the from the Washington Group, is that what that means is is that they are very interested in expanding the mine life of a caddy as well. And they're talking about numbers uh, to, out to 2045. So very significant uh, to developments. And the other thing that's going on is a very robust um, drilling program going on at Kennedy Diamonds, who are also connected to Mountain Province. So there's a lot going on still in terms of diamonds. Uh, and uh, we've been Supported by diamonds for the last 20 years, and they are the, we have three operating. But what's very interesting, and I'll just I have to get this in here, uh, John. What's very very interesting what we're seeing is when we look at the exploration numbers, we're now seeing a shift towards the base metals and precious metals. So what's going to be happening over the next uh, the coming decade is a diversification uh, of the mining sector in the Northwest Territories, based on where we see the shift in uh, in the mining exploration. And uh, and these gentlemen are. Uh, are the folks that are doing it. So uh, now, now I'm sure they can tell you more about that and already having some of their presentations. So thanks, John.
0: Right, right. Now, of course, one of the first questions when you think of territories is the infrastructure and what kind of uh, support is there for infrastructure building. And Michael and Robin, you both touched on the new road and the infrastructure. If you could just speak to that uh, issue, the importance of infrastructure, what's, what's going on?
3: Uh, I'll start. I guess, uh, I guess the first challenge, of course, is with the Northwest Territories. we have world-class mineral potential. The, the trick to operating in the, in, the, in the Territory is obviously infrastructure, because you have to be able to get your product out to market. So, um, costs of, uh, of, of mines for in operating in the Northwest Territories are sometimes two times higher than a, in southern localities, and the operating costs are obviously higher as well. That's offset by world-scale Projects and actually every project that's at the table here is a district-scale opportunity. So you're not just looking at a small deposit.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: You're looking at an IOCG district for my project, diamonds. You've got uh, gold assets that are uh, actually entire districts which are tied up. So the the key, obviously, is is the development of, of infrastructure, our project, uh, is a, a concentrate has to be delivered south for refining so we need an opportunity to get that material to market which is roads. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the federal government, the Northwest Territories governments are co-funding a road to a community. Our company is, uh, is leveraging off that and extending that road from the community up to the uh, to our project site which is another 50 kilometers and this of course is, uh, is a segue to eventual extension of that road up into other communities. It's also reducing uh, the cost of winter road maintenance, basically, for the northern communities that are, that are north of our project, and presumably if uh, the Nighthawk uh, project were to, uh, to advance to a development stage, then, uh, then it's a segue up into uh, to that project as well. So I'd like to look at this as, again, leveraging the, the symbiotic relationship between mining communities and also uh, the government in the Northwest Territories. We have an infrastructure project that's actually being funded from a variety of different sources for the benefit of the communities, for the benefit of the projects, power generation, all kinds of uh, economic opportunities coming
5: from the road that the governments are now funding.
0: Right, right. And Michael?
5: Clearly, infrastructure is important if you're an explorer. As you know, our camps get more and more, our mining camps get more and more mature. You have to start looking farther afield and be prepared to drill some awful deep holes. And the just the inherent cost of exploration is more. So you tend to find more remote deposits have to be more robust. So you put together a larger package. You can't run with a small asset in a logistically challenged jurisdiction. So for us, getting into the area, we knew we had to consolidate a large regional play around a, a former producer. But that, you know, for logistics-wise, as Robin said, I mean, once that uh, Tolicho access road to Watis is built, it cuts about a hundred kilometers off of, of access up to our area. And what a lot of people don't realize, and I didn't until we got our hands on the Colmac asset, is the federal government calculated that there was about a hundred kilometers of uh, waste rock at Colmac that was benign that they could use for a foundation for a road, so <laughs> Even though we're a little more remote, there are some synergies. So for me, I've always said if we can get any of these operations over the hump, there's there's the, the political will and it seems like the economic will across all levels of government to build infrastructure. And, and uh, coming from trying to work in northern areas of Ontario where that wasn't existent and we left, you know, we, we started up there with Aurora Platinum and Lakeshore Gold and... And basically couldn't generate any sort of opportunities along those fronts. And so I've often done, I think I told Wally too, it's very refreshing to get into a jurisdiction where everyone's aligned and it makes everyone's job easier. So I'm a big fan of infrastructure builds. I don't have Mm -hmm. a big bank account. I won't be antying up too much, but uh, I I certainly will be there to benefit from it.
0: Right, right. And uh, there's other kinds of assistance the government can provide. I I guess with the devolution, you had... Federal civil servants just basically crossing the street and becoming civil servants in the Northwest Territories. And one other uh, sort of a small thing but important was the uh, geoscience group of the Northwest Territories government built a uh, new 900 square kilometer, 900 square meter, sorry, core shack and viewing area. And that was something, uh, Joseph, you you found useful, is that correct, Uh, with the Terex? And uh, maybe speak to that.
6: Well, it was almost the other way around. Uh, We we arrived onto our project in 2013, and we took over a large uh, position that had been part of one of the former operating mines. And at the time we went to the territory, one of the things we wanted to look at for was data, because the property we bought, we had none. And the Geoscience Center had taken the archives out of the giant mine, and that's where we found all of our data. And at that point, we realized there were about 360-some holes that had been drilled on the property, so obviously that was of great interest to us. And we went to the giant mine site, which was being uh, uh, cleaned up, and it, and it continues to be cleaned up. They had a core facility there. And on, in that core facility, we found 37,000 metres of core from our property. So we quickly moved that off into our own core facility and began, within weeks of being on the property, we began to relog and resample core to great benefit. We had some wonderful intersections in that core. And on the basis of that success, uh, I should sort of give a little segue, we, we took that core off the site because at the time it was going to be bulldozed into the ground as part of the cleanup. And so, in discussions with the Geoscience Centre, we sort of made them realize what a benefit this core was for us. It was literally 10-plus million dollars worth of exploration benefit that just fell into our hands for virtually no cost, other than the cost of moving it. On that basis, they approached the territorial government and, and, and federal governments and said the money has to be put in to try to preserve this core and we wrote a letter in support of that at the end of the day uh, the money was made available and the core facility was built and now it'll be of great benefit to anybody that's exploring in the territory as we move forward as a side note we increased the size of our property over the years and there's probably about another 5 or 6000 meters of core that's now in that facility that's on parts of the property that we have recently acquired and so we're very much looking forward to Getting into that core and having a look at it, and and relogging and resampling it.
0: And uh, Ken, let's bring you in here. Just, I'd like to hear you or your comments on the diamond potential of uh, the NWT. Uh, you have projects, in different, sorry, different jurisdictions. Whoa.
7: <laughs> uh, yeah, I it's, well, I think it's pretty pretty obvious just from some of the numbers that have been quoted already. It, it's uh, the the, the Lac de Gras discoveries really made the Canadian diamond industry, um, and it is sort of the 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 real birthplace of of all of the discoveries that happened in Canada really germinated there. And that's when a lot of the exploration expertise was developed within um, the junior mining sector, as well as as bringing in major major miners that had never even mined diamonds before, developed their expertise and and the ability to, to discover these deposits. North Arrow, we're still uh, exploring in this area largely because we, we know, although we did very well, we weren't that good and we didn't find everything the first go round. And there's, a, I think, a real, real opportunity for additional discovery, and I think that impetus for that that'll, that'll help lead to more discovery flows from the, the, the fact of devolution. I think it's been a really, really important aspect in the, in the development and, and the maturation of the Northwest Territories, um, the fact that now the local government and decisions are being made out of Yellowknife. <coughs> Um, and not from Ottawa is hugely important. We as a small explorer benefited from the the mineral incentive program which Minister Schumann mentioned in his words. Um, we just completed a drilling program at Lac de Gras last month and, and discovered a Kimberlite and I'm pretty sure it's the first discovery of a Kimberlite there in the last six years and that was uh, that benefited from uh, investment from the mineral incentive program and I think in the end that that, that grant would have covered about 20 percent of our of our cost of that program so significant a very significant portion of that. Tying in actually with the, the core facility, we also were able to take advantage of that because having a camp in the Lactgari area in March is an expensive proposition to keep it open, and that costs money. So as we, we actually brought our drill core back to Yellowknife and logged it there, and now the, the remainder of the core that we haven't sampled is actually being stored in the facility. So there's a real sort of benefits from, from, from these initiatives that the government has been putting into place. The the opening of the, the Gatcha Quay mine, in, uh, by De Beers in the southern part of the Slave, I think underscores the fact that it's not just the Lac de area that is perspective within the territory. Um, there are, uh, and the success that Kennedy had actually in, in advancing um, the Kelvin Kimberlite, going in as a junior company, drilling off a deposit that really no other major would have put the number of holes in and the amount of evaluation that went into that project. I think it's a pretty phenomenal evaluation effort that has now been reabsorbed by Mountain Province, which is the co-owner of Gacha I think all of that just underscores the, the ongoing potential and, and uh, the fact that I think diamonds are going to be the base of the pyramid for quite a long time.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's talk a bit about Aboriginal relations. And uh, the way I understand it, if, if you come to the Northwest Territories, you have to deal with uh, regular, regulatory boards that are independent of government. Uh, these are controlled by local First Nations and other communities. So if you're a mining company coming to the territory, You don't just deal with the government you deal with these boards Tom if you could just explain the structures of these and I'm not sure if any of you four could maybe give a case study of dealing with uh, First Nations issues but first just Tom if you could explain the structure that I believe the government now says is a model for the rest of Canada
4: okay thanks John Um, so the um, Mackenzie Valley Review Board is the board that's responsible for the environmental assessments and and uh, uh, other permits under that Uh, there's a regional structure so they actually are connected in the sense that so I wouldn't necessarily call them independent. So what we have is a uh, a federal, still a federal piece of legislation which is going to be um, over time devolved. We have a commitment in the devolution agreement to to devolve that responsibility and that authority to the territory in the future. Under that we have regional boards uh, that have uh, many members who are Aboriginal on, on them, so in the sense that they're not independent, but they're still creatures of the of the legislation. So right. we call it co-management, and what it means is that the Aboriginal uh, leadership is in the process early on, in the approval process, as opposed to inter- intervening in a process. So it's it's very different uh, in that sense, and I think it's uh, it is a bit. I think it is a model for the country, and um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a- any less. Um, it's very rigorous, so it's robust, it, it needs to be because our regulatory framework still needs to make sure that everything is done in an environmentally sustainable way, that there are socio-economic benefits but it's, it's clear and there is Aboriginal involvement which, really makes, which I think makes a huge difference in terms of the ultimate process and, and
3: getting to a place where the permits and the environmental assessment reviews are done.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I think we should credit the, uh, the diamond industry as well for being pathfinders and leaders in Aboriginal mm-hmm. engagement in particular uh, i mean the the diamond mines are very significant contributors to the economy of the northwest territories minister Schuman's already pointed to the 25% of uh, gdp directly attributed to uh, to mining that's about 40% when you also include the the service industry that's uh, that supports the mining industry so the Aboriginal communities have benefited from from the mining industry immensely. There's new companies that have been formed to uh, benefit from from mining. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd say that probably, f- I think it's the majority of the employment is uh, is with Aboriginal communities. So when he came into our project. Uh, we had a lot of that pathway already uh, paved by the diamond mining industry, but also our project was developed in conjunction at the same time as the, uh, the Tlicho agreement was negotiated between the, the Northwest Territories government and the federal government, which basically has a settled land claim. Although our particular uh, licenses are, are grandfathered, the Tlicho government is the owns the fee simple lands that surround our property, uh, we're negotiating access agreements with, uh, with the Tlecho government right now, but they've had a very positive experience with the, the mining that's been done to date, and that, that's something that's a benefit to, to companies like ours that are coming later.
0: Right, right. Any other experiences to share there?
6: I, I'd like to say, uh, when, I, when we first came into this project in 2013, uh, one of the hurdles I had to get over to, from my board was a perception that the Northwest Territories was a difficult place to work and I went up to Yellowknife uh, prior to the purchase of our property and went into the regulator and talked to them, and all of these gentlemen have been in the business for a long time, and if you're going to work in a jurisdiction that mines responsibly, you have to realize that there's going to be a regulatory process, and I found nothing in the regulatory process that wasn't as good or even better than most of the other areas in Canada, and therefore I convinced my board to go ahead with the purchase. When we began to explore, there was a lingering doubt in people of of how we would push the project forward. In my discussions with the regulatory board, to get a drill permit was a 42-day process. And I was rather taken back by that because in many other jurisdictions, it's a lot longer. And I'd heard, heard stories that it took a long time in the Northwest Territories. The first permit we got, we got it in 45 days and the only reason it was not 42 days was because there was a shutdown in the online system for a couple of days because of a computer glitch and we've had two other permits since and every permit we've gotten within or uh, within the 42 day limit so there's a great regulatory system in place that you can work with and get your permits and make and move your projects forward
7: I might just add in uh, for where North Arrow's at as as
6: sort of the really early stage of exploration, there's a level
7: of of sort of understanding and sophistication. I think it came out in the the results of the survey um, that was referred to earlier and the general support for mining and exploration. And, And so there is an understanding of what an early stage exploration single drill program, kind of like the one we just finished, would be, which is limited in scope, limited in employment opportunities, but there's an understanding that those are the kinds of projects that are required to make the next generation of discoveries that will become the major projects that that then Evolve into much bigger enterprises and and have far more opportunities and and really get into the the meat and potatoes of of, uh, Discussing opportunities and and economic benefits and so on so there's that level of understanding and 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 sophistication I think is is important and that you definitely see it in in the Northwest Territories And I think it's just because of the history of mining there that that whole that whole spectrum has been seen
0: Right and Tom you want to jump back in here?
4: Yeah, thanks, John. I just wanted to um, just leverage off the uh, off the uh, discussion around um, Aboriginal involvement in the regulatory process. In the territories, it's it, the Aboriginal presence, the Aboriginal fact is much bigger than that. I came up from British Columbia and I've been there for a couple of years now and it's, what's very different in the territory from other jurisdictions is that, for one thing, the majority of the population is Indigenous. So the Northwest Territories is actually an Indigenous place. It's not about how do we involve Folks who are in a minority who are asserting title. Um, there are f- four land claims across 60% of the territory. We're still negotiating three other land claims, which means we know on that 60% you know who the landlord is. It's not about asserting title, it's not about having to prove title and figure out how strong that claim is, but it's rather they have fee simple title to that land. And so you know you're dealing with the landlord. I think that's very, very significant. And I, I've, I've, I know the minister always says this too that I, I remind him that not only are there aboriginal governments that we share royalties with on a, on a, on a, on a 25% basis, um, but the, the government is in fact an indigenous government, the government of Northwest Territories. Five of seven cabinet ministers are indigenous people, and uh, most of the MLAs, the majority of the MLAs, there's 19 of them are indigenous. So it's a different context, it's a different way of of, of, of looking at the, the country, and when Minister Trude- Prime Minister Trudeau talks about reconciliation, as my minister likes to remind me is that we've been doing reconciliation for a very very long time. We have a structure in place, we have procedures in place, we have ongoing relations with uh, with the, with the inter- in, inter- indigenous governments through our in, uh, intergovernmental council, so it's much more than involving indigenous people in the regulatory framework in a, in a way and having a role, it's really about, to me, it's about the place uh, and, and I can observe that coming, being fairly new there and seeing how all of this is coming together. So I just wanted to, to share that, John, just to talk about, uh, right. about um, the aboriginal fact, if you will, or yeah. indigenous fact of the territory.
0: Yeah, and we just have a few minutes left, but with all this geological brain power here, I know you have your individual projects, but can you just give a view of the, uh, the full territory? What do you think of it? I see there's like Carlin-style indications of uh, gold mineralization in the West, that kind of thing. W- what, where do you see the uh, exploration in uh, the territory?
5: Closer to the beginning than the end, I would say. There's no uh-huh. doubt about that. Again, as you, as you, if you look back when we were uh, drilling in the Sudbury camp, it wasn't uncommon to drill over a kilometer depth. And Timmins, when we were drilling off the Lakeshore deposit, we drilled I think the deepest about 1,500 meters. We drill one to two hundred up at Colmac, and and uh, even shallower elsewhere. So you can just see the level of, of of exploration that's been done. And if you multiply that across the territory, and you throw in the fact that most of the Greenstone terrains haven't been mapped at an inch quarter mile scale like they have in the rest of our jurisdiction. There's just a, it's kind of a blank slate and, and what intrigued me when I first set foot up in uh, the Indian Lake area in 2009 was at the grade of these deposits and the diversity of the deposit types and it was the same age as the Timmins camp or you know any other prolific gold mining camp. Mm-hmm. But just there wasn't the level of exploration dollars and man hours spent. So that's why I say it's closer to the, way closer to the beginning than the end. Like there's going to be discoveries made, there's no doubt. If you can keep sort of the, um, the landscape fertile, uh, and, and as everyone alluded to, the permitting process goes a long way to do that. Because if you haven't got money to compete with the other province, you can do it on paper, right? By making it easier for everyone to work? Yes. And, and fairer for everyone, and that's not just us, but all, all stakeholders. So, I, you know, I've enjoyed yeah. the last nine years up there. Yeah. You know, it's, been, it's been a good ride for us so far. Okay. i like to uh, just add to that is uh,
6: we're, we have a project that's right in the city of Yellowknife. Uh, so this is a camp that's been mined since the 30s and the 40s. And we're actively exploring on rock that if we were in Timmins, uh, there'd be 50,000 drill holes in it. Every one of our discoveries so far sticks out of the ground. It's, they're not difficult discoveries. They're not, we're not going deep. We're not using sophisticated geophysics. These are gold showings that come straight out of the ground, and we just drill holes underneath them. As was pointed out, this is early days, even for the heart of the belt in Yellowknife.
0: Hmm. Okay. I think we're going to have to uh, wrap it up here. But, uh, I should say one other thing is... Uh, Wally and Tom are also responsible for tourism, and I, I learned that uh, one new phenomenon in uh, the Northwest Territories is the rise of Chinese uh, tourism. So the things they come for are the northern lights, fresh air, fishing, dog sledding, and the rare experience of being alone, where they of course take a picture of themselves, they take a picture of themselves being alone and then share that. Did we so that? <laughs> you time for Oh, okay, we'll have one time for one question if there's a.
4: Uh, we have a million dollars available for uh, providing to uh, explorers or companies so we have a uh, for uh, prospectors we'll provide up to $25,000 to do their work and prospect in the in the territory and for uh, corporations we will add, offer up to $200,000 uh, w- with matching funds
2: all right for prospectors we get $25 Right. Okay.
4: Yeah, and we also we also look at the there's, innovation is actually a criteria as well. So we kind of look at what's the project and what kind of what methods are being used and that kind of thing. so it's. it's uh, but what we found is uh, it's interesting. I know Ken talked about it, but what we found was some. Um, uh, we're leveraging like the Yukon panel. We're we're leveraging say three dollars to every one or three fifty to every dollar that we're uh, we're putting in by seeding that uh, that exploration through that program. So. Doesn't sound like a heck of a lot of money, in a, in, in a, in a, but in, in totality, but small money can lead to big fines, as they say. So,
6: right. How many people
4: got that this year? Um I'm not. I'm not sure. I can, I can follow up with you if you want. Uh, for sure. Yeah.
7: Application deadlines Monday. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. Thanks. <laughs> Yeah, thanks very much, guys. And I should say I saw a headline this morning uh, looking through the press releases. uh, World wine output falls to 60-year low. So be sure to grab a bottle of wine as a thank you on your way out there. That's it for this week's show. Hope you enjoyed it. We're going to come back uh, fairly quickly with a new show, and this one will be the Yukon uh, panel at the Canada House, and that will be sponsored by the Yukon Mining Alliance and the Yukon government. And uh, talk to you then. Bye bye.